Welcome to Crosswords, the podcast about practical Christianity. What does it look like to walk in Jesus' footsteps? How do I live in a culture hostile to godliness? These are questions that we will answer as we get our minds and heart on Jesus. Good afternoon, families. Happy New Year. The year was 1988, perhaps 1989. I was 21 years old. I was in Stony Brook University. I just transferred there. Uh, was electrical engineering major, I think. And it was a heavy load that year. It was my third year, my junior year in college. And it was tough. I had come from New York Tech, where it was kind of easy. And then I was in Stony Brook, where everything was very hard. <laughs> I felt like a fish out of water. The Stony Brook ministry was just beginning. It was just starting. It was uh, a few brothers and myself. The campus looked very different than what it looks like today. There was no new student union. Most of the new buildings that were there were not there. Even the Asian Center was not there. It was a very different campus back then. But nevertheless, we were getting the word out. The gospel was going out. And in one of those occasions where I was with another brother going through the H and G quads, the hallways, sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, getting doors slammed in my face, people throwing things, sometimes discovering that my car had been completely egged for some reason or another. And uh, I met this young man. I saw this young man. And this young man, he was zipping in and out of the crowds. He seemed to be like a social butterfly. Everybody seemed to know him. Every, as he went through the hallways, everybody was like, hey, and hey. And I was like, wow, look at the influence this young man has. I wonder what would happen if he were turned to Christ. I wonder how many more would hear the gospel if that were the case. So it just happened that this young man and I had a meeting face to face. And I tried to teach the gospel to him. We sat down. We had a few Bible studies. And he said to me, well, you know, I, all this that you're telling me sounds interesting. It sounds really good. But there are some heavy challenges here. I think I need to go and speak to my, my pastor or my priest about some of these things that you've brought up. And then I'll get back to you. Of course, I've heard this story many times. And I knew that he probably wasn't going to get back to me. So I just kept on my merry way. But to my surprise, about a few weeks later after that, I can't tell you, I can't remember exactly, this young man comes back and he says, you know, I did have this discussion with my pastor or my priest, and you're absolutely right. Everything that you said, he was going to say, he said. And I tried challenging him and I tried to get him to reason from the scriptures and he was not willing to do that. So I, I think that this, what you're showing me here is true. I cannot deny it. You know, a few weeks later after that, that young man got baptized. And that young man, now he's not a young man, maybe young in the spirit. <laughs> but that young man was Fred Brown. And since then, the Lord has been using him to reach many, many others. As we go through the book of Acts this year, I made a promise that I'm going to share every time I'm going to teach a sermon here or for the other brothers who are going to share a lesson on Wednesday from the book of Acts, we're also going to be sharing some conversion stories. 
in as much detail as we can remember them. So that way we're all encouraged this year to put into practice the Acts challenge. Because the book of Acts is all about spreading the good news. And so if we read here in this first two verses of the book of Acts, this is Luke, of course, who writes the book of Acts, and this is his second letter. We call it the book, right? We say the book of Luke, the book of Mark. But when have you called a book, or when have you called a letter that you wrote somebody a book, right? It, these are really letters, epistles, the fancy way to say letter, that were written to the Christians in the first century. And as you read here, he says in my first book, but that's kind of like how they uh, wrote about, but it's really the first letter. In my first letter, Theophilus, I wrote about what Jesus began to do and teach. This included everything from the beginning of his life until the day he was taken to heaven. Before he was taken to heaven, he gave instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. We see here the theme of the book of Acts. However, the theme of the book of Acts is best summarized in verse 8. When the resurrected Jesus said to the apostles, you will be my witnesses in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And they preached. Preached they did all over the place. Took them some time, but they accomplished it. Within the first apostolic generation of the church, the gospel of Christ expanded in all directions until it reached almost every nation then known around the world, as Paul even writes and testifies in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. And the book of Acts specifically tells the story of the expansion of this gospel throughout Palestine, northward to Antioch, and from there westward throughout Asia Minor, Greece, and Rome, the region that constituted the backbone of the Roman Empire. So Acts of the Apostles may not be the best title given. And remember, these titles were given by people later on, those who wrote these letters. When have you given a letter you wrote to somebody a title? <laughs> so these titles are put uh, later on. The book of Acts or the letter of Acts, it focuses more on Peter and on Paul. So Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, I think really give the best appropriate title to this letter. And it really is how the Lord Jesus was at work through the Holy Spirit, through the apostle who were human instrumentalities of God. Really, the, if the Gospels were the age of Jesus, the age of the second person of the Godhead, how the Son of God was revealed unto the world, the book of Acts is how the third person of the Godhead is revealed to the world through the church. It is the age of the Holy Spirit. It is the age of the church. And we are still in that age ourselves. Notice how the Holy Spirit is mentioned here from the beginning of the letter. And it's not going to stop. He's going to be referenced all throughout the book of Acts because he is the one who is aiding the church in spreading this message. Because after all, the letter, to, the letter of Acts is the fulfillment of the promise of the Holy Spirit in us, which is what God wanted to do since the beginning. Who is the author? Well, from the very beginning, this letter and also the third gospel, the gospel of Luke, have been the works of Luke the physician, a physician in the first century. This book closes with Paul being in prison for two years at the end of Acts, Acts chapter 28, verse 30. So that would indicate that 
The start of the letter must have been around AD 60, 61 is where most theologians put it. And it seems incredible that the writer, after giving so much space to the narration of Paul's imprisonments, I mean, he gives a lot of detail in chapters 21 through 28, that he would have omitted the outcome of Paul's Roman trial. So that makes us believe that the book wasn't finished by then because he didn't write the outcome of the trial. Here's an approximate uh, chronology of the book of Acts. If you think about chapters 1 through 10 as being 10 years, you could kind of give one year to each chapter. And we believe that for the first, first 10 years, the church was exclusively Jewish because they were just in Judea, uh, in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. They haven't yet ventured out, not until at the end of chapter 10 when Peter starts to reach out to Cornelius and his family, the first uh, Gentile converts. And from then on, then it, that's when the gospel starts to take off to the rest of the world. So if we look at the book of Acts chronology, it, it almost takes about 28 to 30 years, the entire uh, book. But the first 10 chapters is about a year each. We can safely kind of say that. So we continue on verse, verse 3. After his death, Jesus showed the apostles a lot of convincing evidence that he was alive. And we spent some time on that, didn't we? On the post-resurrection appearances of Christ. Very important part of the gospel. Very important part to tell of his appearances. Luke includes them here. Uh, for 40 days he appeared to them and talked with them about the kingdom of God. What were these convincing evidences that Jesus showed? Well, we already discussed. Well, I kind of listed them all for you. About 12 appearances where in some of them, he invited the people who were there to touch him and see, hey, you know, this is really me. If you doubt, put your finger in here. Put your hand in my side. This is really me. He even ate before them on one occasion to let them know he was not a ghost. So all of these people were able to see, handle him, uh, touch him, as even John says, we have seen his glory. Uh, we have seen the glory of the one and only son. What is he saying when he's, what he's, what does he mean when he says that? That we saw this, we touched, we handled, he even writes in 1 John. These convincing or infallible proofs could not, this could not have been acts of deception. They could not have been mistaken. Maybe if he, Jesus had just appeared one time and tried to show somebody, oh, you know, this is me, I'm alive, touch me, see me, and then that was it, he didn't appear again, then maybe somebody could have cast doubt on that. But after 40 days of continuously appearing to people, we only have 12 recorded appearances, but there could have been much more. As John himself says, there were many things that Jesus did that were not recorded in the accounts of the gospel. Up, up to 500 people saw him at once. And yet nobody denied that these things were not so. He appeared to all the apostles. He appeared to many other people. And so with, after being with them for 40 days, he was raped, that he was raised from the dead after that, more than enough times to establish this pattern of proof or to disprove any doubts as he did with Thomas. He gave Thomas an opportunity. He didn't believe. And yet he appeared again specifically to calm his doubts. The Feast of the Weeks, which is also known as Pentecost, Pentecost means 50, was observed 50 days after the Passover. And it was a time of thanksgiving 
for the first fruits of the wheat harvest. It was also a time for offering first fruits and sacrifices to God as a way of expressing gratitude for the blessings that God had given. Jesus' burial on the Passover, his then resurrection on the first Sunday, and his ascension 40 days after that are a template. Follow this timeline or this template of this important Jewish holiday. The first fruits of the church were to be offered to God as a way of expressing gratitude for the salvation of mankind. Jesus being crucified, then being buried on the Sabbath or raised in the, on the Sunday, and then 40 days later being appearing. And then finally on the 50th day, one of the most important feasts when all the Jews from every nation under heaven were right there because it was their time to go to Jerusalem. What a time God chose, the perfect timing. All these holidays that had been a pattern were to specifically point to the fulfillment of this promise of God. As he was, as he's going to tell them right here in verses four and five, once while he was meeting with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for what the father had promised. Jesus said to them, I've told you what the father promises. John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The great work of the Holy Spirit was just about to begin on one of the most important days of the Jewish holidays, the, the day of Pentecost. The apostles were not to leave Jerusalem, for that would be the city where most of these promises pointed to. If you read Jeremiah chapter 31, Isaiah chapter 2, uh, many other prophecies mentioned by name the city of Jerusalem where God would start delivering salvation to all nations who would come to him. And so Jesus says, don't leave Jerusalem. Something big is going to happen. Jesus also distinguishes John's baptism here from the baptism of the Spirit. Notice how he calls the baptism of the Spirit a promise. John's baptism was a command for repentance, and a command and a promise are two very different things. John baptized in water for repentance in view of the coming Messiah. That's what Paul told the Ephesians in Acts chapter 19, verse 4. This was a command issued by John via the authority given to him by the Holy Spirit. However, Jesus is describing the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a promise that would soon be fulfilled. And fulfilled promises only have to occur once. And after that, they are current until the promise is removed. Important to note that difference because there are some that get confused about what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. Not the people who attended my new members class because we really talked about this in depth with all those who took my class and we got, got that all straightened out. He'll say here in verse six, so when the apostles came together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Jesus told them, you don't need to know about times or periods that the father has determined by his own authority. Notice that there was still this belief that a physical kingdom was going to come. There was a lot of confusion about that too in the first century where Jesus had to remind them, look, the kingdom of God is not something that you're going to be able to say, oh, look, there it is. Or, hey, here it is. He says the kingdom of God 
is within you. It was to be a spiritual kingdom. But even though he repeated that, and he said many other things about the kingdom of God, there was still this confusion about the purpose of the Messiah. And what kind of, of a kingdom was he going to usher? Was it a physical one? As they ask him, hey, are we ready for that? Are we ready for you to be king? And we're going to be ruling with you? Ooh, little did they know what really awaited them. <clears throat> this implies two things on the part of the ignorance of the apostles. First, it implies that the apostles didn't fully get what Christ's kingdom or church was about. They didn't know it was spiritual in nature. However, they did expect the kingdom because Jesus spoke about the kingdom all the time. But they expected a physical kingdom or maybe a political kingdom. Jesus did not correct their misunderstanding at this time because I guess the emphasis was that, yes, there was a kingdom coming, whether it was spiritual, political, or, or, or whatever it was, it was coming, and you're going to see what it was. The second thing implied by the apostles' questions is an important fact, much debated in people who call themselves Christians, and that is that the kingdom had not yet been established. Very important, because even Jesus says, well, he even told them that the times, it's not for you to know the times, but wait, he says to them, wait until the Father gives you power from above. We're going to see that in the following verses. Israel, Isaiah had already predicted the establishment of the kingdom in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. It predicted that a kingdom was going to come. Daniel predicted its establishment in the days of some Roman rulers. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, he gave a very specific time when the kingdom of God would be established. So those who say that the kingdom hasn't come and it's 2023, they really misread Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, because the Roman Empire is long since gone. And it was established in the days of those kings. John the baptizer said, the kingdom is at hand. A very different message than the prophets who had prophesied about the kingdom. He says, it's going to happen. It's very close in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. So did Jesus. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew chapter 4, 17. The kingdom is at hand. It's about to happen. And so the apostles, little did they know that the kind of kingdom that they were going to see was going to happen to them very soon. Ten days, as a matter of fact, from when Jesus is telling them this. Because after his ascension, around ten days after that, that's when the promise of the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. And that's what he refers to here in verse 8. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you. Then you will be my witnesses to testify about me in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This may be confusing for some. Didn't the apostles already receive the Holy Spirit? Remember, I made a big deal about that in John chapter 20 verse 22 or whereabouts, where Jesus appears to them. Thomas wasn't there. And Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit. And he breathes on them. And they receive the Holy Spirit in the same way that you and I do. They were able to receive the Holy Spirit because Jesus had cleansed them already. They already had undergone John's baptism, which was the baptism that was current at the time. And they received the Holy Spirit. So what are they receiving now? Well, he's very specific. He says, you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes to you, and there's a big differentiation here to understand what the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is all about. 
This differentiation often confuses people that adopt a flaky theology from those who haven't carefully studied the holy text. But to differentiate, I made, I made this chart for you. It's going to be very helpful when we talk about the Holy Spirit now in chapter 2, also in Acts chapter 10, and in Acts chapter 8. Those are very important chapters concerning the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit worked in the first century and what and how he works now. I know it's a big topic, but the book of Acts kind of handles this. If you like this podcast, please show your support by clicking on the support link on my Anchor FM profile. You will find the link listed in the description of the podcast on your favorite podcast app. With your support, I will continue to produce authentic Christian content as the Lord allows me to do. So there's an indwelling which that's what Jesus, that's what the apostles received when Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit on them. That's the indwelling that you and I receive when we obey the command to be baptized in the name of Jesus, as it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. This is what happens when anyone is baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. And this is the permanent promise. This is what the outpouring of the Spirit did. But Jesus said to them specifically in this text, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you. And those words that I underlined there are a very special Greek phrase that talk about this empowerment, which I have up there, which in English is often translated to come upon or to come on, which is very different than to receive or catch. When Luke specifically uses that phrase of empowerment to come upon, that's talking about the power of the Holy Spirit acting upon somebody, not talking about the indwelling. It's what happened when the Holy Spirit was poured out in Acts chapter 2, before the first gospel sermon, when the tongues of fire appeared on their head. And they were speaking in other languages. And we're going to talk about that too, about speaking in tongues. And and what is that? And and how does it happen? And does it happen today? We're going to talk about that as well. It also is what happened when Cornelius received the power of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 10. Peter was preaching to them the gospel again on that occasion. And he was going a little on and on. And God was like, okay, Peter, let's close this deal. And the Holy Spirit came upon Cornelius and his family, and they started speaking in tongues and praising God in other languages. And Peter says, hey, you know, they received the Spirit just like we did. What is he talking about? Just like they did in Acts chapter 2. He says, we got to baptize these people. And so he baptized them. So Because he understood that just because he saw this external sign of empowerment, that doesn't mean they had the indwelling. They needed the indwelling for salvation. And so he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ so that they could receive the indwelling. Just because the Holy Spirit acts upon somebody doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit has saved that person. Because if you go back, way back to Balak and Balaam, to Balaam's donkey, when Balaam's donkey was speaking, you know what? who caused Balaam's donkey to speak? The Spirit of the Lord. And so that was another occasion when the Holy Spirit empowered somebody, in this case a donkey, And he started to speak in other languages because donkeys don't usually speak a human language. But that donkey did. Does that mean he was saved? 
Of course not. <laughs> that was just the Holy Spirit uh, calling Balaam's attention to something that he was doing. This empowerment is not the promise. Okay? Because this empowerment was a temporary act or work of the Holy Spirit solely to confirm the word of the Lord as the end of the gospel of Mark says, that God confirmed this word by the many miracles that were occurring through the apostles. The permanent promise and the promise that was about to be fulfilled was the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So I, I hope that this short little study clarified some things for you. But he mentioned something else too here in this verse, if we go back a minute. Notice how he'll say, then you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses to testify about me in Jerusalem. This is an important confirmation. Being a witness for Jesus involves a whole lot more than just talking about Jesus or talking about his promise. Do you know that the Greek word witness is martis? And it's what typically was translated as martyr about 200, 300 years ago. That's the actual English translation for martis. And what does that mean? It's really one who bears witness by his death. That's the true and faithful witness that Jesus speaks of in the book of Revelation, specifically Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, where he says, be faithful unto death and you will receive the crown of life. Witnessing originally carries this gravity. Since being a witness in our day and age, we might call it a whistleblower, although that carries some negative connotations. But doesn't that carry a negative effect? Who wants to be a whistleblower? Who wants to witness knowing that there might be some negative things happening to me? There might be some flack I need to catch for testifying to the truth. Well, that's the gravity about being a witness. Think about the witness protection program. Why do we have such a program in this country and in other countries? Because true and faithful witness carries something grave that sometimes your life is at stake for being a true and faithful witness. You might end up being a martyr. Or if you are a true and faithful witness, you are a martyr. <laughs> That's what it implies. A faithful witness testifies, heralds, like I shared with you last week, the good news of Jesus throughout our lives. That's our main message now. Often putting ourselves at risk. Maybe the risk factor is not that big in this day and age. Maybe it's not as big as it was before. But when we do a study on the book of Revelation, which I'm thinking of doing that after we finish Acts, because the book of Revelation does involve Jesus' last appearance, and it carries a heavy message about being faithful witness. And that faithful witness that the book of Revelation talks about applies very much so to our day and age. Because oftentimes the devil deceives or misleads us from being a true and faithful witness by us compromising our faith and blending into the world too much. 
Being a faithful witness carries this gravity of being a martyr. It costs something for me to be a faithful witness. It might cost me my job. It might cost me relationships. It might cost me my life. But that's the message in the book of Revelation. The true and faithful witness. Witnessing unto death. So that's what Jesus is really telling them here. In verse 9, he'll say, after he has said this, he was taken to heaven. A cloud hid him so that they could no longer see him. They were staring into the sky as he departed. Suddenly, two men in white clothes stood near them. Imagine that. You're there watching something very unnatural. <laughs> a man defying gravity as he goes up, 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 up like a balloon until you can't see him anymore. I imagine all of them just kind of their jaw dropping right, as they look up. And suddenly, you know, the two men come and say, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing looking up? They said, why are you men from Galilee standing here looking at the sky? Jesus, who was taken from you to heaven, will come back in the same way that you saw him go to heaven. Here is an amazing testimony. These angels are, are confirming that when Jesus comes back, he's going to come back in a very visible way. And this is not the only reference in Scripture that we have to that. But we know even the Apostle Paul in writing about Jesus coming back. They all talk about it. John talks about that too. He will be coming in the clouds with, a, with his glory and his mighty angels surrounding him. So that is a fact that we can guarantee. Jesus is going to appear again. As he went up, he is so going to be coming down. So God willing, in the next week, we will see how this promise of the Holy Spirit is fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, a pivotal chapter, of course, in the book of Acts, but in the history of the church. And it's interesting that next week, God willing, there will be a pivotal chapter here too for the Long Island Church of Christ in this year of our Lord, 2023. So if any of you have uh, some prayers that you would like to come and pray with us this afternoon, please, after services, you can come forward and pray with us. I hope that in this new year, God grants you a lot of wisdom, a desire to be witnesses, martyrs for the cause of Jesus Christ. Maybe that's a good New Year's resolution to have, right? I'm going to be a martyr for Jesus Christ in 2023 in the spirit of the book of Acts. What do you think? Sounds scary, right? <laughs> but that's what Jesus told him to do. You are my martyrs as you go testify about me in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. Let's go, Long Island Church of Christ, because there's a lot of people still that the Lord has to call in order to follow Jesus so that we can all await him with anticipation on that day when he, we see him come back in the clouds of glory. God bless you. Have a great afternoon. Thank you.